It's good to be back with you. So, here in a couple of weeks, we are going to be celebrating an anniversary, right? The beginning of July. And, uh, you know, it's a date that's highly influential. On that date, there was a, a manuscript that was presented that was uh, highly influential in the, the forming of our country and, and actually still kind of reverberates through our country today. It was a defining event uh, and it was widely understood to have marked the beginning of a period of kind of unrest and transformation within our country. And I can almost promise you that this anniversary date, the beginning of July, is probably not even recognized by most people. Most people aren't even aware of it. Most people won't even celebrate it or think about it. If you're confused, I wasn't talking about the 4th of July. You'd actually have to go four more days past the 4th of July to the 8th of July, and then you would have to go 35 years before 1776 into 1741. And on July 8th in 1741, in Enfield, Connecticut, there was a church. The man getting ready to preach was not able to preach, so they had somebody else there, and they asked, can you fill in? Can you guest preach? And he said, sure. And this guy that filled in was this man named Jonathan Edwards. And on that day, he would preach a sermon, and it was not the first time he had preached this sermon. Uh, he had preached it at his home church before. But on this day, in Enfield, Connecticut, he would preach a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is widely recognized, even by unbelievers, as one of the, the greatest, most influential sermons. I guess if you don't count all the sermons in the Bible. Uh, it's one of those you know, sermons that had a huge impact. Enfield, at the time, uh, was a hard church. That church was not a part of the revival that was kind of sweeping around that northeastern uh, part of the country. But on that day, when Edwards preached that sermon, it transformed that church and really ignited that first awakening which then took off and Christianity spread across the northeast part of the country. Well, our passage today in Joshua 7 is a little bit similar. In Edward's sermon, he was preaching from Deuteronomy 32-35. That verse says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. And his thesis, his position statement for his sermon was, there's nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell except for the pleasure of God. So Edwards was saying that all sinful men, all who have not repented, the only thing that is keeping them out of hell 
on a day-by-day basis, an hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute, second-by-second, is by the good pleasure of God. And he said, do you want to wait for God's pleasure to change? Do you want to wait for the moment that God's pleasure then will run out? Or, while God has given you the chance because of his good pleasure, are you going to respond to remove yourself, to get out from underneath that judgmental wrath of God? So in Joshua 7, Israel faces the wrath of God. They run headlong into the wrath of God. You remember, they're just coming off of their victory at Jericho. You know, so they've crossed, they've come from the, you know, being in the desert. They cross over the Jordan. Exciting. God spreads the waters. Man, this is a whole lot like when we're coming out of Egypt, going through the Red Sea. We've crossed the Jordan. We come to Jericho, one of the most formidable cities in the world. All we had to do was walk around the city. The walls come down. We capture everything. The people fear us. They know who our God is. They know him by name. So they're at a pretty high moment. And then they run headlong into this small little city called Ai, and they would lose. And they would have people die. And they come to face, why have we lost? Why have people died? What have we done wrong? What is God doing to us? And they're going to find out that it's not because they were overconfident. It wasn't because they hadn't prayed enough. It wasn't because of any of those reasons, because they had moved out beyond God's plan. But rather, Joshua 7.1 is going to tell us that it was the wrath of God, the anger of God, that had come down on Israel. Let's go ahead and look at it. Joshua 7.1 says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of Yahweh burned against the people of Israel. The anger of Yahweh burned, was inflamed against the people of Israel. What we're going to see is, what does the wrath and the anger of God look like? What, is it, what does it look like? What's it directed at? How are we supposed to deal with it? Because, honestly, it's a little bit uncomfortable at times, right? I mean, we don't like to think about an angry God, you know? And, and you'll see sometimes people will even divide it. Well, the God of the Old Testament, as if it's a different God, is this angry God, And the God of the New Testament is this loving, gracious God. But we know that Yahweh in the Old Testament is still Yahweh in the New Testament. He's no different. So Yahweh functioning here in Joshua 7 is not functioning differently than he functions today. He still has anger. He still has his wrath against sinners. So we're going to see what is this nature, what does this look like from Joshua 7, and then what are we to do with it? Because we're not under the the wrath. I mean, if we're a Christian, are we under the wrath of God? 
I mean, it's not anything for us to worry about at this point, right? Or is it? So in Joshua 7, 1, it says that the anger of Yahweh burned against the people of Israel. And it says, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Aven, east of Bethel. And he said to them, go up, spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up, from, uh, went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. You know, they're coming into the land. God has promised them. He's made a covenantal promise. I'm going to give you this land. You're going to conquer this land. It is yours. And it's worked out that way. We've crossed the river. We've conquered Jericho. And now our second city, and we're chased away, and 36 of our men die. The people don't know what to do with this. Wait a minute. Well, if God is with us, how do we lose this simple battle? This should have been easy. This shouldn't have been an, an issue. And so they, be, they become fearful. Their hearts melted, it says. So we see that evidence of, of Yahweh's anger. Don't misunderstand. The, this passage is all about the anger and the wrath of God. And what does it look like? And so we see that evidence there. And then we see how sometimes the wrath of God can really cause confusion even among the people of God. It says in verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of Yahweh until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hand, hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? Oh, Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Now understand, this is not a rebellious prayer by Joshua. This is not a sinful prayer. Uh, Joshua is not quote, distrusting God or questioning his promise-keeping nature. This is a prayer of despair. You know, God, we've had this defeat. I know what you've promised. But what are we to do with this? How am I supposed to handle this? What do I tell your people? I mean, if we're not able to conquer even the smallest little town, how are we going to conquer the rest of this promised land? And if we're not able to conquer the promised land, it's going to bring dishonor in your name, God. I don't want dishonor on your name. What are we to do? Give us instruction, God. And so there's confusion, and it works even that way for us at times. We'll face trials and tribulations all the time, and we don't know 
is this something God's trying to teach us? Is this God working out his anger on us? Or even is this God working out his wrath and anger on somebody else? And we're kind of caught in the blast. But what we do know is that it is not outside of God's control. God's anger is not capricious. It's not, uh, you know, with no self-control like ours. Rather, God is very patient, long-suffering, Scripture says, in his anger. We already saw earlier in this book that them coming into the land to bring judgment to these nations is not fresh. It's not like God said, you know what? This whole promised land, these people are sinners, let's go wipe them out. They had 400 years to get right. And in 400 years, they could not figure it out. I don't know about you, I typically don't have 400 years of patience for anything. I mean, I'm lucky to have enough patience to make it to Christmas morning before we open up all the gifts, right? I mean, we settle down Christmas Eve, we're going to open up one, and next thing I know, they're all done, right? Yet God waits 400 years before he brings his wrath against the land. But here in this situation, there's sin within his congregation, within his people, and he brings judgment almost immediately. So in verses 10 through 15, we're going to see the threat of Yahweh against Israel. It says, Yahweh said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that Yahweh takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that Yahweh takes shall come near by households, and the household that, the, that Yahweh takes shall come near man by man, and he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed against the covenant of Yahweh because he has done outrageous things in Israel. You see, Achan, when they conquer Jericho, as he's walking through the destruction of the city, he's looking around and he sees some gold over here and some, some silver coins and he sees this beautiful robe. But they had been told what to do with everything in the city. That all the precious metals were to be taken from the city and they were to be put into the treasury of Yahweh. Not under the treasury of Achan, not under the treasury of the people, not under the treasury of Joshua or the leaders or anybody else, but rather 
into the treasury of God. Because Israel didn't defeat Jericho. Israel didn't conquer the city. God conquered the city, and to the victor goes the spoils. God's the victor. Yahweh's the victor. He receives all the precious metals. So they were for him. And then the robe was to be destroyed. Everything else in that city was to be destroyed. So you had things that were set aside for destruction, things that were set aside for Yahweh, and Achan is going to steal all of these things. And he's going to take them and hide. And thus he brings sin into the people of God. And God pours out his wrath. And it's like a hand grenade. You know, a hand grenade is not a precision weapon, right? A hand grenade, you can't say, oh, I'm going to kill this one person in the middle of a crowd. That hand grenade is going to kill the entire crowd. And this is what happens. By Achan's sin, God's wrath comes and it's poured out, not just on Achan, but the entire nation, because they're a community. I like... In America, we like to think of ourselves as individuals, but as Christians, we're no longer individuals in that sense. We're part of a larger community, just like Israel was a part of that larger community. If you think about Rahab, Rahab wants to be saved. When she's brought out of Jericho, they don't just say, you found your salvation, go live your life, and she wanders off and lives somewhere else. No. She becomes part of the community of Israel. She becomes one of the people of God. And so when God brings his wrath against that sin that's been hidden and kept within the nation, it's going to affect the entire nation. And now, here's the scariest part about the anger of God. And we read right past it, and and I don't know if we pick it up. I think we read it, We get it, we sort of understand it, but we don't really think about exactly what God is saying. It's at the end of verse 12. And he says to them that my anger will come to you because of this sin, and I will be with you no more. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among, among you. And, and we, we understand that idea, but understand from Israel's perspective. Israel's entire identity is Yahweh. I mean, without Yahweh, what does Israel have? They're not a military might. They're not this financial institution, this economic force. They don't have a bunch of land yet. They're this migrant people that have been wandering in the desert for 40 years and the only reason they survived that is because God held their hand as they wandered across the desert, feeding them, giving them water to drink, caring for them, protecting them. And now he's brought them into a hostile land with military forces that can overpower Israel and he says, if you don't deal with this sin, then I am not going to deal with you. I will leave you. Now, understand, he's not saying that he's going to leave Israel as a corporate body. Just as when they rebelled, when they 
were supposed to go into the land after the Exodus. He didn't abandon them, but he abandoned that generation. He said, you, this generation, you want to sin? You're going to face my anger, and you're not going to get to go into the promised land. And this is the similar promise here. If you don't deal with this sin, then I will leave you. My anger, my wrath is going to show itself in my turning you over to your own devices. You can go your own way. You can find your own salvation. You can use your own might to survive. And when this generation's gone, then I'll pick it back up with Israel again and fulfill my covenant promises. That's scary. I mean, they've already experienced this once. They saw it happen to their parents and their grandparents, those generations before them. So this is no empty threat. Verses 16 through the end, through 26, shows the severity of Yahweh's anger. Verse 16 says, So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah. The clan of Zarahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites, man by man. And Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. So there's this winnowing process. You can imagine it. Here's the entire nation, all gathered. Joshua says, there's been sin, and we're going to root out this sin. And they start winnowing it down. Judah, come on over here for a moment. Let's go ahead and have a talk. Yeah? Judah, everybody else go away. Zerahites, part of the tribe of Judah, I want you to come with me. All right, out of the Zerahites, Zabdi, bring your family. The rest of you guys go sit down. And now, out of Zabdi's family, Achan, come on over here and let's have a discussion. And you can imagine if you're Achan, I mean, yeah, you're going, please, please don't pick Judah. Oh, no, no, please, please don't pick the Zerahite. Oh, no, until it gets down to it and they tell you to come over. And then Joshua says to Achan, verse 19, my son, give glory to Yahweh, God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And they could answer Joshua, Truly I have sinned against Yahweh, God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them, and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth, inside my tent, with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before Yahweh. And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? Yahweh brings trouble on you today. 
and all of Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then Yahweh turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. And again, here's where we allow our American legalistic or legal sensibilities to come in. And we say, wait a minute, why did all of them have to die? I mean, why did, he, why did, why did Acor even have to die? Like, I don't understand. Why? He just took some stuff. I mean, it wasn't really that big of a deal. And then why does his family have to die? I mean, I understand Achan dying, but why would his daughters, his wife, and then the innocent animals, what do they have to die for? What we see is the severity of God's anger. Also, it reveals our understanding of sin, of the holiness of God, and God's response to that sin. Because number one, when we say, okay, I get why Achan would die, but why his innocent wife and children and and family? Because they were not innocent. They were under the anger, they were under the wrath of God also, beyond this event, just because they're human and they have a sin nature. God's pleasure was keeping them alive. But because they can sin, God removes his pleasure from that and demands that they die. He wants to teach Israel, you need to understand when I give you instructions, when I tell you a command, I want you to follow it. I don't give you suggestions. I I don't make multiple choice options for you. I tell you what my will is, I tell you what I want, what I desire, and your option is to follow that, to listen to my will, or reject that and essentially go against me and face my anger and face my wrath. So when we say, why does innocent family have to die? They died because they were not innocent. They were guilty of sin also. Why did the fan, all the animals have to die? Why did the robe and the silver and the gold have to be burned up? Because God wants to teach Israel that sin is pervasive. Sin is contagious. Sin will spread if we don't cut it off. If you don't purge it from among the people, it's going to spread. And this is exactly what happens after Joshua. You get to the end of Joshua, they conquer all the land, everybody's happy, they settle down, uh, and they lived happily ever after? No. They lived in the time of the judges where everyone did what was right in his own eyes, not in God's eyes, and it's complete, utter chaos. God says, I want you to follow my instructions. I want you to understand the severity of violating my instructions. When you violate my instructions, you're going to face my anger. You're going to face my wrath. I mean, 
we get this, just not in the context of sin all the time. You know, we understand if you're sick and you have the flu, you stay home. You don't go to work because you're gonna, other people are going to catch it. So you stay home. I mean, we shut our country down for six months or more to try and prevent the spread of an illness, to spread this, prevent the spread of a virus. Yet then when we see sin, instead of cutting it off and treating it like a virus, we'll snuggle up to it. You know, I'm not, I don't have my arm around it. I'm just kind of next to it. And we try and get close to it and figure out how much sin can we partake in, you know, before we cross the line. <laughs> You've already crossed the line, you know? We don't view sin and the holiness of God appropriately. So what are we to do with this then? How are we to deal with this? Well, first, we need to recognize that this was not just a problem for Israel. This was not just Israel's problem. Israel, if you don't obey, you're going to face the anger and the wrath of God. This is actually the biggest problem for all of mankind. From the time that Adam and Eve sinned until Jesus Christ establishes his kingdom in heaven, this is the primary problem for all of mankind. All of mankind is under the wrath and the anger of God. You know, we like to think that mankind is mostly good or generally good or, you know, they're pretty good and, you know, there are a few bad apples, but most everybody's good. But that's not what Scripture shows us. That's not how mankind, humankind, has played itself out over the years. John 3.36. John 3.36 tells us, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Think about that. Because we often think of, of salvation in this way. You know, and a lot of people think of salvation in this way. You're born, you're mostly good, you know, you're kind of going through life, and then you hit a decision point, and you have to decide, am I going to follow God, or am I you know, going to remain an unbeliever? And you know, if you remain an unbeliever, well, now you've rejected the gospel, and you're going to face the anger and the wrath of God, and it's going to come upon you in judgment. But that's not how it's presented in John. John says, if you believe, you'll receive eternal life. You'll avoid the wrath. You'll avoid the anger of God. But if you do not obey, if you do not believe, then God's wrath is going to remain on you. It's already on you. You're born under the wrath of God because you're born sinful. So it's not a matter of, I'm in a neutral position and now I have to make a decision. You're already in a bad position. This is, in the promised land, this is the, the Gentiles' issue. They're all facing the wrath of God. And some of them get it. Rahab says, we've heard about your, your God. We know what he's done. We know what he's going to do to us. Save me. Show me mercy. And she finds salvation and escapes the wrath of God and is brought into the family. The rest of them reject it and face judgment. 400 years in the making at that point. Ephesians 2, 3 says it this way. It says, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see, every one that is born is not born as a good, innocent child. You're born as a child of wrath. You're born already under the judgment of God. It's just being delayed. You're not facing it at that very moment. It's delayed until the end of your life. Because of the graciousness and mercy and love of God. So you see, you can't unwind the love of God from the anger of God. They go together. They work together. It's a paradox, I agree. But they're inseparable. You see, the wrath and the anger of God and the revelation of it is actually a blessing to mankind. Because if the anger of God is not revealed, if it's not revealed to Israel here, if God just says, all right, I see you, Achan. I know what's going on. And he just strikes him down in his sleep. Achan dies. And the family finds the gold. And they're like, oh, we've got more money. And they just go on. Nobody learns anything. There's no love in that. Because now Israel starts to think, oh, we can steal. We can take from God. We can sin against God. And he's just going to let us do whatever we want. God expresses his love through the punishment of Achan. Because the rest of the congregation now learns, now understands... This is what happens when you violate God's will. When you go against the covenant of God. You see, the core problem that humans have is that we're sinners under the judgment of God. And that divine wrath hangs over you every day until it's fulfilled after you die or it's taken away. And the way that it's taken away is by God's wrath being then poured out on Christ. I mean, this is the fundamental work of Christ on the cross. He didn't die on the cross to set an example for us. He didn't die on the cross just to be a good guy. He didn't die on the cross to to be a ransom, to pay a ransom for us to the devil. He died on the cross to receive the wrath and the anger that you were owed. The wrath that you have been born under, that you continued to build by actively sinning, so you're under it because of your nature, then you actively sin and bring more of his wrath on you. All of that anger and that wrath then is taken and it's put on Christ on the cross. Throughout the Old Testament, it talks about God's anger, his wrath, is like it's like wine in a cup and it's going to be poured out and when he pours it out that's his judgment coming out on people and mankind this is why Christ shortly before he's arrested he's in the garden and he's praying and he says God take this cup from me he's not talking about a communion cup he's not talking about he's talking about take away the wrath that I need to face if it's your will His father says, no, this is the entire reason I've sent you. You know what my will is. And Jesus says, I'll follow. 
and he goes onto the cross, and he doesn't face the abandonment of God or the absence of God or the vacuum without God. The problem that Jesus has on the cross is he faces the very presence of his Father, who's then pouring out his wrath for all the sin of everyone who's saved. He's pouring that wrath out upon Christ. That's the agony and the pain that Christ receives upon the cross. Is the wrath meant for you, that you earned, delivered to him instead. And then he's buried and raised, and now he stands as our advocate saying, I was their propitiation. I received their wrath. Look at me. I was able to pay the price that they couldn't. They're mine. And he stands as that advocate for us. That's the first thing we need to know about God's wrath. The second thing is, as a church, as a congregation, we're not Israel. We haven't replaced Israel. But we're like Israel in the sense that we're the people of God. We've been adopted into the family of God. And so we have a responsibility like Israel did to deal with sin in our body. We don't just say, we're forgiven, let grace abound. Paul deals with that argument. But rather, we confront sin when we're faced with it. When we see our brother and sister sinning, we do the loving thing. We go to them and say, what are you doing? I've noticed this sin. I've noticed this problem. You You need to stop. You need to repent. This isn't you. If you're a believer with a changed heart, you know you're violating God's will with the goal that they repent and come back. But if they don't, you move through this process until you finally cut them off and you put them out of the body. And why do you put them out of the body? One is for their own protection so that they don't keep living in the church thinking they're saved, thinking they're Christians and everything is wonderful so that they can understand that they have been cast out and are apart from the salvation that God offers and provides, and they're facing the anger and wrath of God, and then also to protect the church, so that the church doesn't get comfortable and say, ah, it's okay to sin. God's loving. He doesn't care about this. So we have to protect the church, and we have to protect the individuals. And this is what God's teaching Israel In Joshua 7, if you're going to violate my instructions, my instructions to you are simple and clear. They're not hard to understand. All the metal's mine. Everything else, destroy. Achan has no misunderstanding. He attributes it to his covetousness. Yeah, I sinned. I took it because in my heart, I coveted it. I sinned. He understands that. He knows how guilty he is. And God wants Israel to know, here's how I want you to deal with sin. With sin in your personal life, with sin in the community of God. This is what I expect because of my holiness. But if you listen to my will and you respond to my will, I'll save you. I'll provide you redemption through the promised Messiah that's to come. And now we get to look back and we see the Messiah who came, who received the anger and the wrath 
So we no longer have to fear the anger and wrath of God. Our eternal place is sealed. We're, we're set. But you could face the wrath of God while here on earth. God may decide, you know what? You're getting a little too comfortable with your sin. Ananias and Sapphira. And I'm just going to remove you so that you don't corrupt the rest of the body. I'm going to remove you so you don't keep sinning and bringing shame on my name and, and heaping shame upon your head. So we can face the earthly wrath of God while we're still here, even if we've been sealed eternally. So my task is to you, evaluate. Have I responded appropriately to the holiness of God, to the wrath of God, to his offer of redemption? Do I recognize my sin nature? Do I recognize my fallenness, my need for God to bring me salvation? If I have, am I continuing to grow? Am I continuing to move through that process of sanctification, of learning to do what's right and learning to not do what's wrong, what's sinful? And then, are you caring for each other as a congregation? Are you pursuing each other when you fall? Are you pursuing each other when you see each other stumbling, when you're weak? Are you looking to strengthen each other as a congregation? Let me close.